Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like, where are you from? There was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Episode 9 Evasive, Mendacious, Glimmer of Hope As we stood awkwardly in the parking lot of my new home, the filtered rays of a weak sun tried to break through the thick New England fog. Our goodbyes were tepid and without emotion, and as usual in our family, no one could look me in the eye. I froze on the inside, but with numbness, not terror. I didn't know how to feel. I had no idea if the bus would be coming back to get me, and I wondered if I might like this place. I felt the pinch of a tear well up in my body, but I held fast, and it only lasted for a second. Paul took me into the building and signed some papers, and then he was gone. I sat on an orange plastic chair holding my tattered brown suitcase until someone came and got me. I was taken to a large room on a floor that housed all the other girls my age. There were lots of us, and no one seemed overtly unhappy. We were each given a cot and a small dresser, and the cots were lined up in two rows with about three feet between each. Every cot had a tiny little floor mat next to it, a very happy mat with bright, pretty colors. We shared a medium-sized bathroom, and the main room was light and airy because of all the windows. The whole environment was clean, calm, and orderly, and the rules were posted on the wall. They were explicit and easy to follow, and in that you could find comfort. I started unpacking my suitcase very slowly. I did not want to attract any undue attention. More than anything, I didn't want to be the new girl again. I just wanted to be from somewhere. I wanted to belong. I casually put away one piece of clothing at a time, and then I would pick up my most favorite book, Pippi Longstocking, and start reading as if I had been sitting there on the cot for all of time. But it didn't seem to matter, and no one seemed to notice. The days moved along with routine and predictability, and I enjoyed every minute of them. I felt like I was in a special club, and I made friends so much easier than I did at school. There was no bullying, everyone was equal. We all knew why we were here, and we had a lot in common. No one could claim triumph in this situation. As time went on, I became a big sister to a few of the girls. It was my natural role, and I played it well. Not everyone was as happy to be there as I was. Some of the girls were very emotional, and it made it hard to sleep at night. It was then, in the dark, when the only light in the room was the bright red exit sign by the door, that their true emotions were exposed. 
The night would start slowly with a few whimpers, maybe one girl at a time. And then, as if given permission, even the happiest of girls would succumb to their lonely and broken hearts and cry the tears of abandoned children. The midnight tears of my peers separated us and made us unequal. I couldn't follow them to the truth. My emotions were as hard and unyielding as a cold blue rod of Cleveland steel. If anything, I felt guilt, a responsibility for their tears, and a torment because I couldn't stop their sobbing. I put a pillow over my head and imagined myself in whatever book I was reading at the time. In the morning, when the sun lit up all the faces of throwaway children, we tumbled out of bed with groggy eyes and innocence and went on about our day, pretending. One morning, weeks deep into the soothing routine of predictability, I was told to pack my suitcase because my parents were here to get me. I packed just as slowly as I had unpacked, hoping that if I took long enough, they would forget about me. But the long-term girls on my ward had it written all over their faces. The unspoken rule of foster care. People come, and then they go, and then you never see them again. I boarded the bus with uncertain steps, prepared for the worst. But Diana did a 180 and treated me as if I had just returned from summer camp. She didn't give me a hug or ask me anything about the place. Instead, she sat with one leg tightly wound around the other, her arms folded stiffly around her breasts, talking nonstop chitter-chatter about the most random of world events. I didn't know why I was put into foster care or how serious the intention had been, but I dared not ask. Instead, I just watched her lips moving, all the while faking the most earnest concentration. Maybe foster care had been temporary babysitting. Whatever it was, she never let on. She acted like it had never happened. So I, too, pretended that it had never happened. Somewhere between the lines of the lies that I heard in foster care, I learned that Diana wasn't the best, and she wasn't the worst. She was just the one I got stuck with. New Bedford, Massachusetts, nine years old. It was a short bus ride to our new home in the working-class town of New Bedford, Massachusetts. The ocean was our backyard, and even though our lives had become boring and shrouded with a new sense of privacy, the house was so light and bright and adorable that once again I fell for that evasive, mendacious glimmer of hope. As a family, we were no longer surrounded by a cloud of patchouli or entertained by a revolving door of colorful people who played music, danced naked, and participated in potlucks and demonstrations. 
The salty provincial New England air was uptight and reserved and in no way conducive to running around in nothing more than your love beads. I had always been on the fence about whether I enjoyed California. It was a weird place, full of nutbags, but now I really missed being there. We were the kind of family that needed to be diluted by other people's dramas, and we also needed that warm, crazy sun to soften our mother's rough edge. Sometimes when Diana sat huddled in the shadows of the dining room, typing herself a version of Linda Goodman's sun signs, for whatever reason, I would sneak a peek at her. She never noticed that I was staring at her, and I don't know why I did. I just liked to look at her when she wasn't yelling at me. Occasionally, at certain times of the day, when the sun shone politely on her face, she looked pretty and nice, and it made me feel good. If my mother was pretty, then maybe I was too. Those loving moments were fleeting because like a mouse to a cat, my behavior always caught her attention and I did not go long without punishments. My crimes were mysterious and I never knew what they were going to be. They ranged from having the wrong attitude, phrasing something in the wrong words, or just not cleaning properly. I would say or do something that would piss her off and we'd end up standing eye to eye with her spewing vile, nasty words at me while I said nothing. And then without warning, that damn smart-ass look she said I had would just shine through my eyes, taunting her and getting me into a world of shit. I didn't mean or even want to be a smart-ass. I was just born that way. I must have gotten it from my dad and she really hated that. In New Bedford, my least favorite punishment was the time I had to sit outside on the clammy concrete stairs for hours. I wasn't allowed to play in the yard or go down to the ocean. I was told to just sit there. The hours wrapped around my restless mind and body like a straitjacket. My butt cheeks burned with a prickly, numb feeling that reminded me of a spanking given by a wet belt. But there was a silver lining to this pathetic gray cloud. My mother thought she was hurting me, but in one way she was actually helping. Left to my own devices, I probably would have sat out there for hours all on my own just to see a girl from the neighborhood that I had a crush on. She was in her late teens or early 20s, and she flounced around with a wispy bob of curly hair, a sassy demeanor, and a face marred by the most beautifully crooked teeth. It was the unique alignment of her teeth that attracted me to her. Their misshapen appeal seemed to hold the clues to her personality. Rough and ragged, tough and sexy, smart and independent. I was unfamiliar with what her charisma did to my body, sweaty palms, racing heart, and glazed over wide-eyed stuttering words. 
I knew I wanted to be her, but a much spookier feeling was that I wanted to have her, even though I didn't know what that meant. One day, not dissimilar to the rest, my smart-ass attitude got me sent to my room. I don't know what I did, I just did something. But as far as rooms go, this one wasn't bad at all. It was filled with books and papers and there was a window that looked out onto the bay. There was so much I could do to pass the time that it was almost like a vacation from my life. Looking out the window of the second-story bedroom made me feel like I was living in a lighthouse, all alone, marooned on an island, inspecting the going-ons around me. At least I had the houses to watch instead of just the scary old nothingness of the expanded sea. Every house had a soap opera, and I was the writer. The scenarios were endless, and it kept me busy for hours. But all imaginings take work, and work is exhausting. So when I became tired of my stories, I played my most favorite game of all, school. I was the teacher, and all of my students were invisible. My favorite part of playing school was hearing the important and determined activity represented by the sound of shuffling papers. I was a very stern teacher, and I didn't put up with any rowdiness or backtalk. My students were misbehaved, and I constantly had to discipline them. I would make them stand in the corner, nose touching the wall, just like my mother made me. I was given one meal a day, which was brought up to me on a tray by one of my siblings, and I looked forward to the tray, even though it was the same meal every night cottage cheese topped with canned peaches with the occasional slice of Zwayback toast. I hated cottage cheese. Eating was an effective way to pass the time, so I took tiny little bites of peaches in an order to elongate the meal as much as possible. I was going to take full advantage of this activity, cottage cheese be damned. But life wasn't all hell. My mother was very resourceful, so there were indeed some very inspired and creative moments in our lives. One night in particular, she dressed us up real pretty. Tony wore a suit, and I was in red velvet, and we went to Boston to see the play Godspell. She also let us kids have the adventure of doing an overnight at the Children's Museum, also in Boston. After a cacophonous evening of squealing voices bouncing off art installations and frolicking around freely without parents, we settled down into our sleeping bags and watched the movie The Red Balloon. There wasn't much to the movie as far as I could tell, and yet it wrecked me most deeply. I have no idea why the story of a young French boy chasing a red balloon all over town without so much as a word had such an impact on me. But it did, and I cried like a baby. 
I dove under the blankets, trying to hide, but my tears got away from me. When the chaperones came rushing over, I was completely embarrassed. I was the only kid crying, and it didn't make sense. I wasn't the crying type. It seemed like such a sweet movie, not sad, and it had nothing to do with me. The grown-ups kept asking, Are you okay? Do you want us to call your mother? It took a long time before I could get the words out, but finally I said, No, don't call my mom. I'll stop now. And yes, a resourceful woman she was, because she found a Christmas party for low-income families provided by Stouffer's, the frozen food company. I enjoyed the Christmas experience being celebrated in an institutional setting. It felt clean, sterile, and free of conflict, just as Christmas should be. We ate turkey tetrazzini out of a thin cardboard box, sang songs, and then Santa came around and gave us each a professionally wrapped, impersonal present. There was something about the building that reminded me of foster care, which made me wonder if this was more than just a Christmas party. I was surprised at the end of the night when we all went home together. I had thought for sure that this was some sort of last rites party for kids who were about to be given away. But no, it was just a sweet little Christmas party for the poor. <laughs>